Welcome back. I'm Peter St. Ange. This is a weekly roundup of my daily videos on the economy and freedom, where I try to cut through the BS and the smoke and mirrors and lay out exactly what the clowns are trying to do to you and what is coming next. America's two mammoth entitlement programs, Social Security and Medicare, are going bust. Ten years. That's how long before Social Security goes broke, according to the Congressional Budget Office. Millions of Americans are facing the prospect of losing their monthly checks, and the government isn't doing anything about it. Both of these sacred promises, which beneficiaries have already paid for, will need trillions in ongoing bailouts, tens of trillions in all. This is a problem considering we are already running a $2 trillion annual deficit, largely squandered on useless crap. And even that $2 trillion going by history will soar when the recession hits full force. Typically in a recession, social spending jumps, tax revenue plunges, so the deficit explodes. So welcome to the late empire loot the treasury level of fiscal discipline. First, the details. Social Security was founded in the 30s as a universal retirement program, Medicare in the 60s as a universal health insurance program for seniors. Both are funded by payroll taxes totaling 15.3% of your income, all paid by you, but half hidden by making the company deduct it first. Together with Medicaid, which extends health insurance to the poor, they consume half of what the federal government spends, about $2.7 trillion in fiscal 2023. And both, as you'd expect, have enormous waste. The GAO estimates $60 billion in fraudulent Medicare payments per year, since government bureaucrats really don't care. Moreover, both were intentionally set up as Ponzi schemes. They take in money, they pretend it's in some sort of account, a lockbox, but actually Congress pissed it all away. Even using the pretend reserves, Medicare is projected to run out of reserves in 2031 once, that's eight years, at which point it will hit an $80 billion annual deficit that's set to soar. Meanwhile, Social Security is projected to run out in 2033, so 10 years, at which point it will need to cut benefits by 23% unless it gets bailout or massive tax hike. Note, many retirees rely on Social Security alone, and roughly 70 million Americans rely on Medicare. The silver lining here is that Social Security and Medicare are among the most popular government programs in existence. There is no other federal spending that comes close. Not wars, not billions for cronies, not even woke universities. Meaning that in the coming great gladiator battle, it will be social security and Medicare against everything else. The programs will not go bust. No politician would even joke about that, unless they have dementia, but most don't. Meaning that when D-Day comes, we will commence an epic battle, with one side using insolvency as an excuse to massively hike taxes or print more money, and the good guys, I hope, using insolvency as a teachable moment why we should drain everything else that the feds waste money on and put it on Social Security and Medicare. Drain every penny for the wars, the cronies, even the woke universities. As much as I look forward to that day, going by history, they will do all the wrong things first. They will put it off as long as possible, and then they'll print, so they'll drive deficits to three, four, five trillion, paired with tax hikes, using the rich as the pinata to raid the middle class, only as a last resort, only if they face electoral catastrophe from voters will Congress actually do the right thing, the gladiator battle. Give up their beloved wars, their vote-buying slush funds, their crony army to shore up the programs the American people have paid for in good faith while Washington siphoned it off in the dark. 
Last week, the Wall Street Journal reported on the widening gap between spending and taxes, which is on track to give us a deficit this year of almost $2 trillion. The journal worries that this gap is increasing not because of the economic cycle, but for structural reasons that could make it permanent. Meanwhile, researcher Luke Groman gave an interview on Wealthion worrying the, quote, toxic combo making those historic deficits could crash stock markets. The issue is that we are running a deficit of 9% of GDP, which has never happened with unemployment this low. That sounds like a good thing, but it's actually a very bad thing because it means that 9% is structural. It's not a temporary thing during the recession. It is built in, meaning when the recession hits full force and unemployment skyrockets, the deficit will explode. Because remember, the deficit is made of two parts, spending and tax receipts, and both get much worse in a recession. Millions of people lose their jobs and need help, but falling incomes and profits drain tax payments. So the deficit balloons. In other words, from an economic perspective, we are running in Luke's words, quote, wartime deficits in a peacetime economy. To illustrate, we can take our last three recessions. In the 2001.com crash... We went from a surplus of $200 billion, as 2.3% of GDP, to a deficit of $400 billion, so a drop of nearly 6% as a percent of GDP, or $600 billion. It was much worse in the 2008 financial crash. We went from a deficit of $160 billion to a deficit of $1.4 trillion, so that was almost 9% in GDP and $1.25 trillion in actual dollars. Next came the COVID lockdowns. We went from a trillion-dollar deficit to a $3.1 trillion deficit. So spot the pattern. $600 billion deterioration in 2001, $1.25 trillion in 2008, $2.3 trillion in 2020. It almost doubles every time. So it is a ratchet. Where does that put our deficit in the next recession, Is it going to be $5 trillion? Will it be more? Of course, all of that is not even counting the soaring interest on the federal debt, which is much bigger even in GDP terms than it was in previous recessions. So today we're at $32 trillion. In 2008, it was just $9 trillion. In 2001, it was $6 trillion. Now multiply that three to six times bigger debt bigger debt payments, by the fact it could be paying much higher rates than previous recessions. Because in a normal recession, the Fed slashes rates to try to stimulate the economy. That reduces borrowing costs for the federal government for short-term debt. But this time around, if inflation is still galloping when the recession hits, the Fed may not be able to slash rates. All right, so what is next? In Herbert Stein's famous line, whatever cannot go on forever will stop. This next recession could be a financial reckoning on Washington's institutionalized Ponzi economy that could end up converting deficits into pure inflation via the Fed. In honor of Labor Day, my heritage colleague EJ and Tony put together a solid thread laying out what's under the job market in plain English. In short, Biden's amazing job market, the one bright spot in an otherwise post-apocalyptic landscape of crumbling statistics, indeed, the running excuse for the recession deniers, the one thing standing between us and the abyss is smoke and mirrors. Built on between 4 and 5 million Americans who have permanently dropped out of the labor force, leaving some of the jobs to new arrivals, whether by plane or by river, and leaving enough jobs unfilled that the numbers look flattering enough to brag with a straight face. Now, we had known this during the pandemic as millions dropped out of the labor force altogether, 
But now, going on five years later, millions are still on the sidelines. Some are living on government benefits, some are running down savings, some are no doubt praying for a miracle. First, the numbers. Unfilled jobs soared during the pandemic as people dropped out of work, they either retired early or they were afraid to leave the house. At one point, unfilled jobs hit 12 million, which was roughly 7% of all jobs in the Republic. That was a record high and almost double the pre-pandemic number. Ever since then, jobs have been either filling in or canceling, gradually draining the shortage so that today we're actually below the pre-pandemic trend in open jobs, while the lost workers are looking increasingly permanent. So first we lost the workers, then we lost the jobs. Bloomberg has been running a bevy of recent articles on this, quote, normalization. Problem is, it's not a normalization. It is a ratchet down. We've lost enough jobs that even the millions who left the labor market aren't missed anymore. Tallying up the numbers, there are 500,000 fewer Americans in the labor force, even though our official population has gone up by 6 million since pre-pandemic. That's official population. According to the BLS, we've lost between 4.5 and 5.5 million workers depending whether you count payrolls or households. Controlling for those millions, according to EJ, we'd be looking at an unemployment rate right now of 6.3%. And keep in mind, unemployment doesn't soar until well into the recession, so that is coming. To get a typical effect, we can look at the last 25 years of recessions. The 1990 and 2001 recessions both sent unemployment up about 2.5 points, so that would bring us to about nine today. The 2008 crash sent unemployment up five points. So in today's terms, that would be above 11%. And of course, the lockdown fortified 2020 recession sent it up over 11 points. So yes, it gets worse each time. So what's next? The economy right now is crawling on fumes, floated by pandemic era savings that are about to run out, according to the Fed, along with pent up demand for cars and houses that are now hitting sky high interest rates. When the economy turns, jobs will clear out by the million, just as those drained savers are coming back looking for a job. We could essentially get two rivers colliding, jumping the banks as the newly unemployed combine with the long unemployed, all sending millions of Americans and their families scrambling to make ends meet. The main Asian currencies, the Japanese yen and Chinese yuan, are both plunging, which could knock out the world's two biggest customers for America's federal debt. What's driving the plunge is that markets now expect the Fed to keep rates higher for longer, since it's taking them longer to strangle the U.S. economy than they had anticipated. The problem is both China and Japan have much lower interest rates, which drains money out of them to the U.S., to earn higher returns. In China, rates are at three and a quarter, so that's about two points lower in the US. In Japan, they're actually minus 0.1%, so you would have to be a masochist. Why so low? Because they didn't have double-digit inflation, so their central banks aren't trying to kill them. If that money can earn a lot more in the U.S. at five and a quarter than it can in China or, God forbid, Japan, it floods out, selling the local confetti and buying dollars, at which point those governments swing into action, selling their U.S. debt to soak up their worthless currencies. A few days ago, Japan's top foreign exchange official, Masato Kanda, issued yet another desperate plea 
against the rapid decline in the yen after it fell nearly 7% in the last two months, bringing its total fall to nearly 40% since the pandemic. This is Japanese yen, is not the Argentine peso. The Chinese yuan is not much better. A 10% fall since May has brought it near 15-year lows, prompting China to order private banks to sell their dollar assets and buy up the yuan. Now, normally both Japan and China try to keep their currencies weak so their exports stay cheap. They do that by hoarding U.S. dollars in the government. That means fewer dollars chasing yuan, which means a cheap yuan, presto, cheap exports. Those hoarded dollars are invested primarily in federal U.S. debt. That means both the yuan and the Japanese yen are perennially undervalued. The Economist magazine keeps track of this, and they estimate the yuan is undervalued by about 40% and the yen by closer to 50%. So that's actually a problem because it's too cheap, because imports get expensive if your currency is worthless. So Japan, for example, imports close to 100% of its gasoline. If gas is selling for $4 a gallon in the rest of the world and the yen's at 100 with taxes, that's about 500 yen per gallon. But if the yen goes to 150 that jumps with taxes to about 750 yen per gallon. So that's 50%. Keep in mind, wages in Japan are about half those in the U.S., so that feels more like $10 gas. Of course, it gets worse when oil prices are rising. They're up 30% since June. That makes for a near doubling, which is a shock to the Japanese public, who then demand a stronger yen. So what is next? U.S. data is telling the Fed to keep it up. China is actually cutting rates to fight off a financial collapse, and Japan has got miles to go before five and a quarter. So expect more investors fleeing both China and Japan, delaying the fallout of de-dollarization, but also draining treasury of its two best customers, China and Japan. And that could push the Fed to stop its quantitative tightening policy of selling U.S. debt to fight inflation, instead returning it to those halcyon pandemic days, buying treasuries hand over fist, and driving inflation back towards double digits. Recently, the Wall Street Journal published an article about the coming green energy bailout. In short, hold on to your wallet if you can find it in the dark. Now, this probably won't shock you, but it turns out green energy providers lied, pulling the mother of bait and switches, promising cheap energy, but as soon as it's built, jacking up the price like some clip joint in the red light district. It is now coming fast and furious. New York State just issued a report that large offshore wind developers are demanding an average 48% hike their electricity rates. That's what you would pay. An alliance of 86 clean energy providers representing both solar and wind is demanding a 64% hike in the Empire State. Similar demands have been filed in 11 other states with more coming every week. Now, this is despite Biden's comically named Inflation Reduction Act, which was almost entirely made up of hundreds of billions in crony handouts to green companies, 24 tax credits alone. Among the many goodies for Biden's favorite taxpayer swindle was a massive tax credit that offset 50% of a project's cost. The twist is companies were allowed to sell those credits, even if they were losing money, so they had no tax to offset. Meaning not only do they pay zero federal tax, they actually get paid by selling their exemptions to, out on the street. So you are paying them to lose money. This also probably won't surprise you, but the dollars at issue are soaring. Just a year after the IRA passed, these credits are running two to four times what was promised when it was debated. They're now on track to cost $1 trillion over the next decade and growing. 
So keep in mind the 48 to 64 percent hikes in your electric bill are all on top of those trillion dollar swindles. Of course, it would be one thing if the power actually worked. Double or quadruple the price, but at least the lights stay on. And alas, for that, we go to Texas, which once again faces an energy emergency because the wind is not blowing. System-wide ERCOT SPP prices just hit $5,000. They're usually about 20 or 30 bucks. As the windmills sit idle, of course, the gas and coal plants whose budget they spent on wind do not exist. Fortunately, it's not cloudy in Texas right now or they'd be burning the furniture to cook dinner by the shade of the solar panels. And finally, and ironically, it turns out the Inflation Reduction Act is pushing up inflation because the trillions flooding into green tech is driving up demand for equipment, material, and minerals that were already in severe shortage worldwide. And so, armed with your taxpayer trillions, they are bidding them up. As Ms. Shedlock put it, quote, everything Biden does leads to more inflation. So what is next? Soaring electric bills, draining family budgets, more inflation courtesy of the Inflation Reduction Act, with yet more government nagging to turn down the thermostat, take one for the team, so the green lobby can pay their yacht crews and keep their mistresses in Jimmy Choo's. Recently, the left-wing magazine The Nation published an article arguing that the root of the problem in nosebleed housing costs is that housing is treated as a, quote, instrument of profit. Their solution is to instead make housing a, quote, human right. For decades, we've seen this pitch from the left. Yes Magazine says energy is a human right. The UN says free contraceptives are a human right. The Pulitzer Center says air conditioning is a human right. So what's the problem? Simple. If housing or air conditioning is free, Instead of an instrument of profit, who is going to build it? Because there are three and only three options in this world. Profit, slavery, or do without. So if you make it worth their while, profit, or you can force them to do it, or it's not going to exist. After all, houses are not built by the magical house fairies. People actually have to wake up at five in the morning. They have to lug a pot of coffee and a bag lunch and work all day in the sun to build a house. Other people have to save up money, skip the family vacation, pinch pennies so they can lend their money to home builders who pay those workers until the house is done. Now, why do those workers wake up at five and why do those savers skip the vacation? Because they get paid. So calling for houses to not be treated as an, as an instrument of profit is a call either for the houses not to exist, which is presumably not what the nation has in mind, or a call for those workers and those savers to do it all for free. Now, we have a word for this, slavery, meaning you work and I take your work, in this case, in the form of a free house. Of course, today we have a more polite word for it, taxation. So you work, a bureaucrat takes it, and he gives your work to somebody else. Of course, slicing off a fat slab to cover his cushy government job and a little something for Ukraine. So those are the choices, profit, slavery, or do without. Pay the builders, force them, or have no house and complain about broken capitalism. Final point, there are people who cannot afford a house, so how do we handle them? Simple, make it easy as humanly possible to start a business, both as an entrepreneur and to hire others. Unless you'll be building the house yourself, a job, after all, is how you afford a house. There is no other way. 
that doesn't involve making somebody else do it for you. There are few ideologies whose marketing is so cheerful and whose reality is so brutal as socialism. For centuries, millennia actually, it marches ultimately to that special North Korean blend of forcing people to do stuff and otherwise doing without. Unfortunately, our education and media have been seized by socialists who've brainwashed significant portions of Americans, including many who vote. Ben Franklin once said, experience keeps a dear school, but fools will learn in no other. Creeping socialism will eventually wake these people up as the shortages multiply, the prices become ever more outrageous, and the gulf widens between what you earn and what you keep. Eventually, even the brainwashed legions can see with their own eyes. Unfortunately, the rest of us are forced to join them on their magical journey of discovery of the true meaning of socialism. The Airbnb jackpot is drying up. Recently, we've seen a slew of articles about the Airbnb bust, worrying that the good times are over, that hosts will be eating cat food as they await that once a year booking. Two years ago, I bought a house in Palm Springs and renovated it. I'm not going to sugarcoat it, you guys. It, we lost money. We, uh, it's not looking good. So in fact, it's more nuanced. Airbnb is playing out a concentrated version of the boom-bust cycle set off by a combination of lockdowns followed by slash-and-burn interest rates at the Federal Reserve. The story starts back in March of 2020 when media went wall-to-wall on COVID in a coverage orgy that put the OJ trial to shame. Millions stayed home to save lives, but soon they decided New York is really boring if everything's closed. Some moved into their second homes, but most decamped to the suburbs where they could get a backyard or to remote rentals where they could wait out the apocalypse. Back in 2020, I was driving through the New Hampshire mountains and saw scrawled signs shouting, Lowlanders go home. This all drove Airbnb prices to the stratosphere. The second homes came off the Airbnb market, while the New Yorkers and the mass holes settled into long-term rentals hogging those up. Airbnb hosts minted money. So what happened next is what markets always do. High prices brought new supply. With the Fed pimping 3% mortgages, millions of regular people looked at those eye-watering Airbnb profits, whipped out the pocket calculator, and decided they too would like a free house. So off to the mortgage man they went. This flooded the Airbnb market. One year to March 2023, listings were up 26%. So that's a quarter of what they had built in the previous 13 years. Alas, the apocalypse ended. Pandemic restrictions gradually eased. Millions of renters could no longer hang out in Maui while supposedly working in Boston. That led to a glut with empty rentals and plunging prices. So in 32 of the top 50 rental markets, host revenue is now down 13% year on year. Across Airbnb, revenue is just over $1,000 per month which is not bad, but it's not the five grand people were hoping for. And more important, it's not enough to cover a lot of the mortgages it took them to set it up. Meanwhile, hosts are having to raise their game, putting in amenities like high-end appliances and outdoor kitchens to get those Instagram moments, making sure the free shampoo, the soap, the towels are all arranged just so. Meanwhile, failing cities like San Francisco, New York, and Chicago are trying to outright ban Airbnb, who they blame for expensive rents because it's more fun than blaming them themselves. So what is next? I don't think Airbnb as a concept is dead. It is a sound idea, especially for families, but the glut is going to take time to work out. Meanwhile, a looming recession could complicate things since recessions hit travel and leisure very hard. So just a few weeks ago, the Fed reported the $3 trillion 
in pandemic era excess savings are about to run out, which could mean yet another exodus, this time of paying customers on Airbnb, leaving those hosts with mortgages to pay. The biggest takeaway is there's no free lunch. Airbnb, like everything else, takes a lot of work for the money. And like everything else, the Fed stands forever ready to screw it up. Thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe to get next week's episode right in your inbox and visit petersanange.com for all the videos, archives, and fresh articles about economics and freedom. Okay, we'll be watching. See you next time.